0: Well, this morning, I've entitled the message, Big God, Small Box. So last week... We, we, we spoke about how that we are a part of a supernatural religion, that, that God moves in supernatural ways. And you can see time after time in the scriptures where God does stuff that just doesn't make, it's, it can't be done naturally. We see storms that are halted. We see people healed. We see people risen from the dead. And even our very salvation is based on the fact that Mary was born a virgin, that she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon her and she was with child in a supernatural act. And then even even when he was born, we'll talk about that a little bit today, how God was born as a baby. Can you imagine that? The king of kings came down to be one of the most vulnerable creatures in the vulnerable time in our existence. He was a baby. But as as we launch off of last week and we see that we're part of a supernatural religion that God moves in supernatural ways and he still does that today, I want to talk about today is how we tend to put our big God, our huge God in a small box. Anybody ever did that? You guys know what? You guys know what I mean by putting our big God in a small box? That's when we begin to have preconceived ideas of how God can move. And I think it's natural. I think we probably all tend to do it. I know I find myself doing it from time to time when I have to kind of check myself. I have to back away a little bit and say, man, what are you doing, Wayne? What are you doing? This is not God so much bigger than your ideas of how things can happen. See, the problem is, is that all too often that we limit God by our experiences. You understand, we limit God by our experiences, we, we look at God and we go, man, God is, God is our father, so he must be like our, our, our natural fathers in some way. You know, so what happens is, is, is especially if you, if you didn't have a great father, you begin to apply those attributes to God and you begin to think, man, he's probably just waiting for me to mess up. God's just looking out, waiting for me to screw up so he can beat me across the knees with a, with, with a stick and just put me in my place. Or we begin to think, you know what, my father wasn't very loving, so that must be how God is. God is aloof. God stands away from us. And already, just based on our experience of who our father is, we begin to put God in a box. Instead of looking at the scripture and who he is and how he works. Or what about this? Maybe your father was great. But your knowledge of God is primarily based on what you've seen on TV. What you've seen in the movies. And we begin to to get these ideas of of God as this wrinkly old white-haired guy in heaven just watching down on us. Or he's not real or he's some mystical guy in the sky. And we we get all these ideas based on who the TV says he is or the movies say he is. But really, if you want to know who God is, you've got to spend time in his word to see who, who he actually is, what he does. The other thing that we tend to do is we limit what God can do by what we think is possible. That's probably the greatest thing that, that we deal with. Because the truth is, is that the bigger the problem that we face, the more greater level of faith it's going to take to overcome it. So if you have a small problem, it doesn't take all that much faith to trust God for it. You know, if you just need 20 bucks at the end of the month so you can make sure you pay your electric bill, that doesn't require near as much faith as, say, Asking God for healing from cancer. Matter of fact, the smallest level of faith that we can have, that we need in the kingdom of heaven, is the amount of faith to be saved. It doesn't take a whole lot of faith to be saved. You just trust God and believe that He died for you, that, that He made you brand new. But it starts getting it starts getting a little bit tougher when you're asking for those big things. You know, asking God to, to heal you from a headache is a whole lot different than asking God to to heal you from a life-threatening disease. It takes a whole different level of faith. And we live in a world today where, where now, you know, if a doctor tells you that there's no hope, there's nothing that we can do for you, we resign, we give up. Because we limit what God can do based on our experience or based on what some doctor says. Even though, probably many of you have been a Christian for a long time, I've seen God just blow those ideas out of the water. People with uncurable diseases. I've known, we've known people, uh, Pastor Michelle and I, that, uh, the, the ones I've told you guys before, but they, Hepatitis C is an uncurable, life-threatening disease. And God has completely healed people from that. And they know she had it because they went in and they did more blood tests and they could see the antibodies in her body, but there was no more Hepatitis C. Or a young man that, that had hands laid on him and he was cured of leukemia. And the problem was, he was such an active kid. He was so healthy. He was a swimmer that by the time he didn't go to the hospital because he still felt pretty good because he was so active. And when they finally took him in, they said, This is, you know, you waited so long to come in because you were such a strong kid. It's so far, we can't do anything. And then he had hands laid on him. The church prayed for him, and he was completely healed of leukemia. But there's so many of us in our eyes that we have this. I'm a, I'm a realist mentality. You know, like, you know, we're going we're gonna to pray, but, you know, we don't really expect anything to happen because I'm, I'm a realist. And that's limiting God. That's limiting God's ability to work in your life. I want you to know that God is too big to be placed in a box. He is too big to be stuffed in this little idea of what we think He can do. His ways are not our ways. And also, all too often, actually, probably most of the time, God does stuff in ways that we would never do them. And things happen in ways that we would never expect. And I don't know about you, there's so many times that I've tried to tell God how I think it should happen. And uh, that never works out for me. Never, ever. So, the first scripture I want to look at this morning is Isaiah 55:8. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. This is something that we have to get a hold of if we want to grow in our faith. We have to stop telling God what He can do. We have to stop... Even We have to let our mind be open to understand that God can move in ways that we could never imagine. As we looked at last week, that God moves in the supernatural, that people can be healed by His power, people can be risen from the dead by His power, that, that we are victorious in His power no matter what that we are facing. And it has nothing to do with us internally, our own gifts, our own power, but it's the fact that God is working inside of us to help us get past these areas. And we begin to see how we want things to happen and how we want it to to work out and we tell God this is how it should be but maybe He has different plans. Maybe He wants you to start in a house church like we did even though we had different plans. And I know I can tell you right now when we got into this building my plans were we were going to be filled up from day one. We started as a Uh, A small group at the house, for you guys that don't know, we started a couple years ago. Uh, We were sent out from the church in Tucson, and we started in my home. And there was just my family and another couple, and we began to to grow, and we got a few more people. And we went for a couple years, and we saved the money so we could get in here. And I just knew as soon as the doors opened, we'd have to hold them back with a stick. They were going to come pouring in. And as you can see, they're still staying away by the thousands. But, you know, we're going to grow. God is going to move in his time. We're going to continue to trust God. But I could tell you, this whole journey has never been how I thought it was going to work out. You'd think I'd stop telling God how to do it. i finally just give up, but I don't know. I think it's something we all got to work through. (laughs) But the the reality is we do need to stop telling God how how he can work in our lives, how we should work in our lives. You know, if we don't understand and grasp that God has a better handle on the situation, that God has a better grasp on what we're going through, that we're always going to limit God's ability to work in our lives. But I want you to know that God knows what's going on in your life, and He has a plan if you will just let Him work. Stop putting Him in a box and just let Him do what He wants to do and trust Him no matter what path that may lead us down. Amen? In 2 Kings 5, 1 through 3, I want to start looking uh, over the next few verses or uh, slides here. We're going to look at the the life of Naaman. And this is an interesting story for me because I think it perfectly illustrates uh, a man fighting with God, basically pushing back against God because he didn't think God moved how he wanted him to move. In 2 Kings 5, 1 through 3, it says, Naaman. Commander of the army of the king of Syria. So Naaman is a Gentile. He's, he's He's a heathen. He's not a Jew. He lives in Syria, and he's the commander of the army of the king of Syria. And he says he was a great man with his master, and in high favor because and because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. And he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Now this is an amazing story as I read this. Because there's so many things going on here that is so not the way I would be doing things. So first off, we have somebody who's obviously an enemy of Israel, right? And God is the God of Israel. So this guy's in Syria and He's attacking Israel, and he steals this little girl in a raid. He takes her as a slave. And this guy, he's a pretty high up guy in, in, in Samaria, he's, he's the, or Syria. He's the, the commander of, of the king there. Basically, he's second in charge. He's pretty high up. He's got everything that you would think that he could ever want, but he's a leper. Now, fortunately for him, uh, he's in Syria, so at least for them, uh, being a leper didn't exclude you from the rest of the people. As you know, in, in Jewish law, That uh, if you were a leper, you were considered unclean, so you, couldn't be, you weren't fit for worship, and you couldn't stay inside the camp because you couldn't make other people unclean. But it wasn't quite like that in Syria, so he could st- as long as he was doing his job, he was okay. But it's still a life-threatening disease. It's not a disease that you want to have. And it was terminal. I mean, this is, this is going to eventually kill him. But anyway, he catches this little girl. He takes this little girl's slave. And she's a, a young Jewish girl. And how many of you, if you think that you were taken captive, if you were stolen away when you were younger, from your, even as an adult, if you were stolen away and put into slavery, how many of you would begin praying and trying to find a way for your master to be healed, to be cured? this guy that just stole you away from your parents, away from your friends, away from your family. And she does such an interesting thing. She says to her mistress, would that my Lord, or with the prophet who, prophet who was in Samaria, he, he would cure him of his leprosy. Blows me away, the, the heart of this little girl, the understanding of God's love that she has. But the truth is, is it's so strange It's what we're commanded to do as well. Matthew 5.44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's Anybody ever tried to do that? It's not so easy. That's a hard thing to do, to pray for those that are persecuting. Pray for those that are being mean and being rude for you. Rude to you or hurting you. And that's what this little girl, she's praying for him, and she says, you know what? If you would just go see this prophet, the prophet of my God, then he, my God, would heal him. And That just blows me away to have a little girl that that has a greater grasp of who God is and his love than most of us in this room. It seems to me she's probably actually got a better grasp than everybody in this room of who God is. And as we read a little bit further along in 2 Kings 5, 9-11, through 11, it says, So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry when, and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. So, now Naaman, he talks to his king. The king sends word over there. They're going to send him over and, and he's going to give it a shot because he's probably not got a whole lot of time left. He's dying and at this point, he's willing to try everything, even go to the land of his enemy and, and hopefully get them to, to cure this, this terrible disease he has. But, Nonetheless, he's still a high-ranking official of another country. And just like when we have other high-ranking uh, officials come from other countries to the United States, I mean, we, we put them up in nice places. They're greeted almost like royalty. I mean, we, we definitely honor them in their position. Even if uh, country to country we're not getting along, we still honor them. So he shows up and Naaman expects to be received like a high-ranking official or a prince because that's how kings did things. Yeah, that's how he should have been received. And it's funny because Elisha, he doesn't even come out to greet him. He doesn't even come out to say hi, let alone bat uh, the door with you know an entourage and making sure that he's feeling honored and has everything that he needs. He doesn't even come to the door. He just sends somebody out. And then this messenger said to him, Go wash in the Jordan. And it's the messenger comes to him. Elisha sends his messenger. Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. What a weird thing to say! What a weird way to cure somebody! I mean, that's—I think I'm gonna—we'll be, we'll see—is is we'll we'll, we'll uh, see. Naaman here. He says he was angry and went away, saying, "Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper." I mean, that's how I think most of us would think that Elijah was going to come out in this great peal of thunder and, and, you know, talking in a, in a deep voice, this is God, be healed. Wave his hand over him and, and we're going to see an amazing thing. But instead, Elijah says, you know what, just go out and wash in the Jordan seven times. Get in there, wash down seven times, and you're good to go. And man, that is not the way that I would expect God to work. I think I would have had the same idea. I wonder what Elijah thought when God said, "Go tell him to do this." He's like, "Really?" The difference is Elijah's like, "All right, you're the boss." So then, we see what gets Naaman in trouble. Behold, I thought. That phrase will get us in so much trouble all the time, when God wants to do something some way, and we're like but I thought you would do it this way. I thought you wanted this. I thought you would do this. So oh, you didn't even check what I wanted. You just began to think. You began to make assumptions. Anybody ever had that with their kids? Oh, man, your kids do something? But I thought. Now, what do we tell them? Now, the problem is you didn't think. That's the, that was the problem. But Naaman had a preconceived notion in his head. A preconceived, Naaman had put God in a box already. He said, This is how God's going to act. He's going to stand up. Elijah's going to stand up, call on his God, and wave his hand over me. And he had this idea of how this prophet should act. He had an idea of how God was going to act. Has anybody in this room ever been angered or challenged that God doesn't respond the way you expected him to? man, I keep looking back over this this journey as we've planted this church, and man, I see it time and time again, and I'm like, God, I don't understand. Like, if you just would follow my plan, this would go swimmingly. We'd be doing great right now. And I'm, I'm confused, and I'm challenged, and I'm like, God, I know this is what you have for us. This is the promise you have for us, but if you could just do it like this, then we're going to be okay. And I think with me, God just likes to mess with me. Because it's been like that from day one. Every time I tell God what I will or won't do, it heavily ends up being what I do or don't do. Every time. But the truth is, even today we all get these kind of ideas in our head. You know, the scripture is pretty clear on, on what it takes to be saved. The scripture says that you believe on the name of Lord Jesus, that he died for you, that he cleansed you of your sins, and then he rose from the dead, giving you newness of life. It's as simple as that. You just trust God. You believe him. But there's so many people in this world that already are trying to choose what they get to do to be saved. And it's, all, it's actually all kind of innocent stuff or all good stuff. But some people think that they just have to live a good enough life. If I can just be good enough, then, then of course I'm going to go to heaven. That's not what the scripture says. That's not how God decided to do it. That's how they decided to do it. Or if I just read my Bible enough, if I just come to church enough, if I just tithe enough, if I just do all of these things, then, then surely God will get me into heaven Then God will let me in. But it has nothing to do with any of those things. Now, I thank God for all of those things. We do those things because God has changed us, because he's made us brand new. We, we tithe because we want to honor him. We are nice to people because that's the love of Christ manifesting through us towards others. We read our Bible because that's how God speaks to us today. And we come to church because the scripture says, don't forsake the gathering of the brethren. And we can meet together and we can learn and we can grow and we can create relationships. That's why we do those things. But we don't do any of those things to be saved. None of those things are going to make you right with God. The scripture says that that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But we trust God. We believe. We believe. We have faith in Him. And then in Second Kings 5, 12-14, it says, Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, is it a great word the prophet has spoken to you? Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Dude's ticked, because he has to go wash in this river. And he's so angry that God's not doing it the way that he wanted to do it, that he, he almost walks away from his miracle. Pride and offense will get us in all kinds of trouble. You know, God may, you know, I wondered why, you know, why would, why would God have him do it this way? I mean, God, how many of you know God could have had Elisha go out there and wave his hands over him and he'd have been healed? That was a perfect, reasonable response from God, and God's perfectly capable to do that. God could have told him to do the hokey pokey and turn yourself about and you'd be clean. And if God wanted to do it that way, if he would have just done it, he would have been cleaned. And in this case, he told him to go wash in the river of the Jordan. Well, the problem is, his name is a little bit prideful. He thinks he's better than the Jews. He thinks that his rivers, the Abana and the, the Farpar, are, are better rivers than the Jordan. He thinks they're cleaner. And he's, oh, why couldn't I just wash there? So God's saying, you know what, why don't you just take a step back and just humble yourself and be obedient to what I have for you. And it seems like his servants are the wise ones. He says, Hey, it's a great word the prophet said to you. Will you not do it? I mean, they they don't get it. They're like, He said, You just have to go wash in the river. Go get in the river. And they're they're not stuck with this pride that he has. They haven't decided that God, they haven't put God in a box. He's like, Man, if that's how he tells you to do it, it's not that big of a deal. You know, people that are becoming Christians often struggle in this very same way. We can't understand how God would do something so simple to give the gift of salvation. And people struggle and they're like, man, that can't be enough. That can't be what God wants is me to just trust him. No, he's got, he's got to want something more. He's got to want something. Maybe I have to do a certain amount of things. Maybe I have to do all these things, and then I'll be right with God. And we, we can't even understand how God would move in such a simple way and ask such a simple thing, which for some reason seems to be such a difficult thing for so many people. To just surrender and say, God, I trust you. I believe you. Just like Naaman here. And the rest of us are like, Why wouldn't you just do such a simple thing? You know, God's not looking for you to to get right before you come to church. He wants you to come to church so you can get right. And it's just trusting in Him. So then he goes down and dips himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And he was cleaned. Such a simple thing. Go down on the water and strip down. Now this was tough for him because he really did have to humble himself. One, he's in front of all of his servants and in front of a bunch of people who doesn't know. And he's got to strip off his armor. And the people can finally see how bad the leprosy has him. They can finally see how ravaged his body is. And, and he's struggling with that. But he has to surrender and be humble. And many times for God to move in our life, we have to stop being so prideful and stop thinking that we can do it on our own. Early when my wife and I were married, I I had a hard time trusting God because I could just do everything. And finally God said, you know what? Give it a shot. And he stepped back. And my life crumbled around me. Our marriage almost ended. We filed for bankruptcy, our relationships were terrible and finally I began to trust God because I realized that I couldn't do it on my own and I needed him and I surrendered and said fine God do what you will and and obviously our lives are a little bit different right now I went from a, a guy who wouldn't bother trusting God because I could do it on my own to becoming a pastor God moved in my life when I stopped telling him how to do it You know, do the same for you. I'm not special because God turned me into a pastor. There's nothing special about that. I'm just doing what God asked me to do. But God will do more than you can ever imagine if you'll just trust him. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. If it would just be obedient to God, no matter what it is, no matter if we think it's silly or it's not the right way to do things, if God tells you to do something, trust Him. And it may be that you go down in the water and dip seven times and come out perfectly clean. In 2 Kings 5, 15-19, it says, Then he returned to the man of God, and he, said, all, and he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And the Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon." When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this manner. And he said to him, Go in peace. You know, Naaman finally submits to God, and God was able to work. And even though it was an unconventional means, especially as far as Naaman was concerned, this is a very strange way to do something. God not only healed him from his leprosy, but the scripture says that his skin was like that of a baby. It was brand new, it was fresh. It was Perfect. And he was thankful. And he says, you know what? Let me give something to Elisha for doing this. And Elisha, he doesn't accept anything because it wasn't Elisha that did it. It was God that touched this man's life. He wanted to cement in Naaman's mind that, hey, you trust God. You don't have to buy God. You don't have to give him stuff to to get stuff. God loves you and God's going to do these things no matter what because he loves you. And it has nothing to do with what you did. And, and Elisha just wants that to be cemented in his mind. Hey, you don't have to buy this. God loves you. And he did this because he wanted to. But even still, Naaman is still, he's young. He's Basically, at this point, he's a new convert. He's a baby believer. He hasn't figured everything out yet. And he goes, okay, well, then give me a couple mule loads of earth so I can I can worship God at home. And this is interesting because, one, he wants to worship God. That's good, right? But he doesn't quite know how to do it. He doesn't quite understand that, that God is everywhere. He doesn't need these, these loads of earth. But the reality is, is, even in this, this is an act of faith. You know, what is he going to tell his king when he shows up with two, two loads of earth and he says, hey, what's that for? He's got to explain that. and Go home and say that he's beginning to worship a different God. And he makes this commitment to offer sacrifices to no other God but God. And he says, you know what? And please give me grace when I have to go in with my master and go through all the ceremony. He basically is saying, just be with, you know, let, pray for me that God would know that I'm doing this because I have to, not because I want to. My heart's not in it. Naaman was a changed man because he finally took God out of the box that he had placed him in and let him work how he wanted to work. And it basically took one of his servants saying, what if he would have told you to do something amazing? Would you have done that? Would you have, you know, What if he would have told you to climb the highest mountain and then you'd be healed? Oh, well, I, I could do that because that would be an accomplishment. And it said, he said, just go to the river. Something so simple. I know it doesn't make sense to you. Just be obedient. And he was healed. And this isn't the only time that God operates in such odd ways to me and I look at what God's doing. The story of Gideon is another amazing one. As we know Gideon's the lowest of his family, God shows up and says, Hey, mighty man of valor, mighty man of God. He calls Gideon the lowest of his family and the lowest family of the, of the area. And God says, You're a great man of God. He calls him something that he wasn't. So God begins to use this low man to, to accomplish something great. And Gideon rises up against the, the people that are attacking them. And they're, they're getting ready to fight the Midianites here. And in Judges 7, 6 through 7, it says, The number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So this is a strange one. So Gideon gets up, and he's got 32,000 men with him. He's going to go fight the Midianite army. So he's looking pretty good, right? you got 32,000 people behind you. I think when you're going to war, we're all thinking the more the better, right? You want more soldiers than the other guy. That guarantees your victory. So he's got 32,000 men with him. He's thinking, I'm doing pretty good. I'm feeling all right. Let's go do this. Midianites, you don't know what's coming. And God says, no, 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 wait. you got too many people with you. And he he says, you know what? Ask everybody, whoever's afraid, tell them they can go home. So it starts out with 32,000 people. Gideon says, all right, everybody, if you're afraid, if you're scared, just go home. Now, on one hand, you're like, well, that's kind of crazy. There's probably a lot of them that's afraid. And wouldn't you know, 22,000 of them were afraid, and they went home. He went from 32,000 people to 10,000 soldiers with them. So you're like, all right, ten thousands still kind of a lot of soldiers. And I guess I can understand that because if you're in battle, you don't really want somebody who's not going to do their job because they're afraid going with you. So maybe this is a good idea. All right, God, I'm 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 not sure about this, but send them home. I got 10,000 left and says, so, "All right, let's go do this, God." And God goes, "Well, you know what? I think you still have too many people. So I tell you what. Go have them all take a drink of water." And they go and they take a drink of water and and they drink in two different ways. One, they they have the Some that go down here, it says that they put their hands to their mouths. And there was 300 men of that. So basically, they went down to the edge of the water, and they scooped up the water with their hand, and they were drinking. And the rest of them, it says that they they went ahead and just knelt down on their knees to drink. But the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. So they basically went down on all fours, and they're drinking straight out of the water. And that's the difference of how they're drinking. One of them's bringing water up to their mouth. The other one's sticking their face in the water. And God says, you know what? Only the people that brought water up to their mouth Only let them go and the rest send home. He's like, God, you got it backwards. There's only 300 of them. Maybe we want the other 9,700 to come and we'll just send those 300 home. But God says, no, send 9,700 people home, just you and the 300. Now, at this point, Gideon's got to be saying, God, let me tell you how war works. Let me explain to you that when you go to war, you need some people. And this isn't going to work. I mean, look at this camp, God. You see how big their camp is? And you left me with three hundred. Now, some people argue that the reason why this happened is, is uh, the guys that went down and they were just bringing the water up to the mount. they were staying on the alert. They were, they were looking around and they were keeping their eyes up. And the guys that, that uh, went down on all fours to drink on their knees, they're not really paying attention. They're not being alert. So maybe that's why God sent them home. And there's all kinds of different theories on that and why that happened. Different theologians have different ideas and I don't know. But I know that God says we're going down to 300 people. And that's not the end of it. So now you're like, okay. Gideon's probably thinking back. I've read some stories. I know God can do amazing things. All right. We're going to go in there and we're just going to take care of business. But then this is what God says. Check this out. Judges 7, 19 through 21. It says, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of, of the camp. And, and at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, and the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, and they so we have three companies of a hundred that are going to war with pots and pans. Did you hear what I'm saying? They went to war with jars and pots and pans and trumpets. God's like, "All right, we're going to go attack this camp. You won't need your sword. Just go and leave that at home. What I want you to do is head down to the kitchen. And pick yourself up some jugs, some pots, some pans, then head over here to the to the musician area where they 're all getting and grab some trumpets with you and we 're going to go fight an entire army now, I think it would be wiser to go to a, a gunfight with a knife than it would be to go to this with pots and pans. This is not how I would have done things, and they go in there and they begin to break the pots and bust them apart. It says, <clears throat> it says the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars and they held in their hands torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon and every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran and they cried out and fled. Actually, the next scripture says they began to turn on one another. They began to fight and kill each other. God gave victory to Gideon and his 300 men with pots and pans. Now, I don't think you could call up the, the United States Army and say, hey, we're going to take your rifles, we're going to take your tanks, and we want you to go in with this new, uh, uh, this new pot and pan set. Don't worry, it's stainless steel, so it's going to last. It's going to be good. It's not, you know, it's, it can handle the harsh weather, but this is all you need. When you're ready to fight, just make lots of noise. What do you think would happen? But God doesn't work the way we think. God doesn't work the way we operate. And what if Gideon would have said, no way, I'm not going to do it. That's crazy, God. See, we have hindsight. We know that Gideon wins. We, we know the end of the story. Gideon didn't. Gideon probably thought God was bonkers. But he trusted him, no matter what. And God did an amazing thing. What about when Jesus turned water to wine? You guys all know this story, right? Right? It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, and they, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? You never talk that way to your mom, just so you know. <laughs> and he says, woman, what's that have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some water out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This is a crazy story. How many know that Jesus turning water into wine is a pretty amazing miracle? We've all heard the story, right? That's something that that he did that was pretty amazing. Anybody know what this means? The Jewish rites of purification? You want to know what these buckets of water were? This wasn't like collected rainwater. This wasn't where they were filling up the cups with water. This is when they came in, people got their feet washed in this water. This is water that's being used to clean and purify them before they go in. This is this is not good water. This is not, you know, this this wasn't an arrowhead, you know, we have the coolers and the that's not what this was. This was foot funk water. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus said, Go ahead and start dipping out of the foot water. The you know you know, they they walked around in sandals. And the horses and the, they pooped on the ground, and this—that's why they had to clean. That's why they did this because their feet are covered in, in, poop. And they clean in that water, and Jesus is like, "Hey, why don't you go ahead and just use that? Just it'll be fine. Trust me in this." So then, the the, the servants go and they take it to this to this the master of the feast, and he says he didn't know where it came from. So thank God because he'd have probably been freaking out. But it says the servants knew. Can you imagine these guys it's like? Oh, my. When he finds out, when he tastes this and realizes that it's not wine, it's foot funk water, he's going to kill me. They're going to shoot the messenger. But what did God do? He took this water, this nasty water, and he made it a fine wine. And it says that it, it says that it was the good wine. It was better than what they had originally bought. Man, that's not how I would have done things. I mean, nowadays, they get, wine comes in a box. we we'll get a few boxes, bring it back. But foot funk water. But God doesn't work how we work. His thoughts are different than ours. And he does amazing things. What about uh, Jericho? Joshua 6, 2-5, through 5, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You should march around the city, all the men of war going around the city at once. Thus shall you do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make... And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So this is another amazing story. God's having these guys attack the city. And he says, you know what, I've given Jericho into your hand. And once again, he doesn't give them weapons. He doesn't give them all these things. He says, here's what I want you to do. For seven days, just march around the city. All right, God, I don't know what that's going to do, but all right, we trust you. They don't say a word. They march around for seven days. And on the seventh day, they all yell at once. They all scream. I mean, that's... you ever heard somebody say, man, they have a powerful voice. This is a little. This is like that. This is where that probably came from. Because these guys screamed, and the walls fell down flat. Now, the interesting thing about these walls is is when I picture this in my head, even now as I'm talking about it, I automatically picture, like, the wall in my backyard, you know, a single cinder block coming up. But that's not, this. this wall was probably tens, maybe even hundreds of feet high. It's wide enough that two chariots can ride on top of it and pass each other. And this wall is Massive. And it just fell down flat, you know. So this thing is so wide that if it would have just fell over like we picture in our head, right, fell over this way, it would still be too tall for people to get over. Somehow this wall deflated or it sank into the ground. I don't know what God did, but God doesn't do things the way I think about it. He can violate the law of physics all he wants. He made him. But this wall falls down flat when they yell, when they scream. Can you, man, that's not how we would decide to do these things. You know, I would imagine that we would see, you know, fire come down from heaven. We say, God's going to give this thing in your hand. You're like, yeah, we're going to see some fireworks now. The angels are going to come in, mop up. We're going to see fire come down from heaven. But no, God's just like, yell, get loud on the seventh day. The walls came down and they were victorious. What about the virgin birth? This is God moving in a way that I can't... It blows me away every time. Luke 2, 4-7 through 7 says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in a swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. This is Jesus. This is... God come in the flesh, and He's born as a baby. Now that's a lot of trust that God's putting in Mary. I mean, this is the Savior of the world. This is God in the flesh, and He comes down as the most vulnerable creature that we know. And He wasn't still. He was a baby. He still had to be fed. He had to have his diaper changed. He had to have all. I mean, when when, when Jesus was born, somebody had to smack him on the butt so he could start breathing. And this is this is our God. This is our Savior. And he's born as a baby. Now, if I was God and I was sending down our Savior, I don't think this is how I would have done it. So thank God for all of you that I'm not God. Because we'd be in a much different place right now. I could probably say the same thing about every one of us in this room. Anybody else would have sent a baby to save the world? I mean... And this isn't even like today. Today, babies can, can survive anything. But back then, I mean, he was born in a manger. He was born where the animals lived. And Michelle would have straight freaked out. She would she, have been ordered, calling ahead to the future. I need some, some sanitizer, some of that gel, because we've got to get to town on this place. But God did that. He sent something so vulnerable who would, who would eventually grow up to be the Savior of the world. In Romans 19-16 it says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written Jacob I loved but Esau I hated what shall we say then is there injustices on God's part by no means for he says to Moses I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I have compassion on whom I have compassion so then it depends on human so then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy See, this is an interesting verse because many people use this verse to try to say that that God only likes a certain amount of people. There's only a certain election, a certain amount of people that can be saved. And if you're in that group, good for you. If you're not, there's nothing you can do to be saved. You know, God has his elect, his chosen But if you take a moment of what Paul's actually arguing here, he's not arguing for an elect subset. What he's saying is is that God has the free, sovereign will to make whatever decision he wants. And he's ministering to the Jews right now, and he's saying, who are you to say whether God can save the Gentiles or not? The Jews are saying, no, salvation is just for the Jews. The Gentiles are heathen. God doesn't want anything to do with them. But Paul's saying, you know what? No, who are you to say who God will have mercy on? And that's what the point is here. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's parts? By no means. For he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Basically, God's saying that I'll do what I will. And we need to understand that that the way God does things may not be the way we do things. The Jews were having problems here because they're like, the way we would have done things, the salvation would have just been for the Jews. But God says, no, I've opened that up to everybody. Salvation is for anyone who would just put their faith and trust in me. And when we argue back with God, it's such an interesting thing. Because if you just take, we do it all the time. And I understand that. But if you just take a step back and think how ridiculous that is that you're arguing with God? Just think about that for me, because it's, it's ridiculous. Romans nine twenty says, But who are you a man to answer back to God? Well what is molded say it's to its molder, why have you made me like this? It's crazy to argue with God. One of the funniest stories in the Bible is about a man who argued with God. Or at least, that's kind of funny. I'd hate to be in his place. But Job 38, 1 through 7 says, Then the Lord answered. So the backstory of Job is that, that uh, we all know that Job was doing great. Everything was fine. He was serving God. He basically ends up worrying about his kids too much because they're, they're, he's worried about what they're going to do and they're going to fail. And he gets his mind all messed up. And next thing you know, God and Satan are talking. Satan comes down and starts messing with Job. And Job's having a bad time for a while. And Job's like, wait a minute, I haven't done anything. And he begins to argue with God. And like, come down here, God, and let me argue my case. And I want to tell you how it is. And this isn't right. And, you know, the whole works. It's, as you can see, it's like 40 chapters of this. So that's a very, very small paraphrase. So at this point, God finally answers. After this whole 37 other chapters of, of Job complaining to his friends and his friends trying to rebuke him. And then another kid saying, no, you all got it wrong. And it's a bunch of these people arguing and mainly Job arguing with God. And this is what happens, Job 38, 1-7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the war ones and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's what happens when we argue with God. We're usually coming from a place without knowledge. We think we've got to figure it figured out, but we don't really know. And it says, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Who wants to be in that position? He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And it goes on and on like this for a while. Basically, God's saying, where were you when I did all this, when the world was created, when the stars were put in the sky? And he begins to rebuke Job. I can't imagine being on the end of something like this from God. But truthfully, that's what well, we should see in our head, the response every time we argue with God and tell God how he should be doing something. And he can say, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Listen here, Jack, I think I got, I got a handle on the situation. I think I got it figured out. The truth is, is that God has infinite wisdom. He has infinite foresight. He understands what's going on. If you're going to trust anyone, it's got to be God. But I thank God today that man, he, you know, he's patient with us in our ignorance. And truthfully, it's not even just our ignorance, but it's our arrogance that he's, faith, he's, he's patient with us on. And I thank God for that, because I never want to be standing before God and have this coming at me. We'll go ahead and end here today. Isaiah forty thirteen through 14 it says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows Him as counsel? Whom did He consult, and who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice, and taught Him knowledge, and showed Him the way of understanding? I can give you one clue. The answer to these questions is not you, and it's not me. You know, there's so many examples of the Bible that mention things that just seem odd and don't make sense. Why would God do these things? You know, why did God put the tree in the garden in the first place? Why did he remove Adam and Eve from the garden after the fall? You know, in these things, he put the garden there so that we could actually make a choice. Because if we didn't have a choice, we'd just be slaves. Instead of friends. Instead of people that love God and him loving us. And if he wouldn't have removed Adam and Eve from the garden, then they would have had the opportunity to remain in that broken position. God actually blessed us by removing them from the garden so that they weren't permanently rendered broken. The flood in the ark... That doesn't make any sense. People being raised from the dead—we can't explain that story. You guys remember the story of the the oil that ran out? the 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 widow didn't have any money. Matter of fact, she was so poor she was going to have to sell her kids into slavery. You know, nowadays we're having a rough time, and they come and repo our vehicles. They're going to repo our kids. And then God lets her begin to pour oil. And the oil doesn't run out. How does that make any sense? What about when Jesus fed the hungry with, with just a few loaves and a couple fish? He did it a couple times. And then salvation by faith. That's really an incredible thing. If you look at every other religion in the world... The primary difference between every other religion in the world versus Christianity is Christianity says that God came to us. And it's our trust in him that gives us salvation. We trust him to do the work. We trusted him to do the heavy lifting, to get rid of our sin, to make us clean. Every other religion in the world is about what you can do to become right with God. And just do some research. If you don't believe me, look, every other religion in the world is about what you can do to become right with God. But Christianity is about what God did to make you right with Him. And obviously that doesn't make sense to us humans because every other man-made religion is about us getting right with God. We've got to understand that we don't direct God, but rather He directs us. And every time that we try to direct God, we actually limit His ability to work in our lives. And the truth is, the box that we try to put him in is too small to contain all that he wants to do in our life. So let's be a people that open the box, let God move, let him do what he will, and let's just trust him, amen? Amen, let's go stand to our feet.